The fact that Jesus called the church to suffer is not in question. I know that's contrary to the prosperity gospel. But listen to what the Bible has to say. Jesus himself said to the disciples, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That's from John fifteen twenty. Listen also to the Apostle Paul. He wrote this to his son in the faith, Timothy. He said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Second Timothy 3, 2. That's not in question, according to the Bible. But what often puzzles the Christian is how the early church responded to the sufferings of Christ. What is in question, what often puzzles Christians, is how the early church responded to suffering for Jesus Christ. And uh, we can look to the book of Acts to see these responses for suffering. In fact, that's exactly why we had Danny Lou uh, read from the book of Acts, chapter 5. You know, if you don't know anything about the book of Acts, Acts is a record of the birth of the church. Uh, Jesus Christ goes back up into heaven and he says, look, I want you to be about my business. Go and establish the body that is the church, preach the gospel. And then you see people converting. You see people embracing Jesus Christ to the praise of his glory. And the church is expanding in number, even in the midst of persecution. And so Acts chapter five, verse 40, you have here the apostle Peter and the other disciples, as Danny mentioned, they were arrested. They were beaten. They were released. They aren't given to despair instead this is what it says this is their response when the jewish leaders had called in the apostles they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of jesus and let them go then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name i think to many Their response is so confusing because so many times for us, we see our sufferings. If you're like me, at times we see our sufferings as occasions for complaint, despondency, despair. But the apostles, they saw their sufferings for Jesus Christ as opportunities to sing the glory of Christ. Today, as we continue our series through the book of 1 Peter, we want to learn how our sufferings for Jesus Christ too are opportunities to sing the glories of Christ as well. Peter himself went through it. That's Acts chapter 5. And then now as we go through 1 Peter, we have Peter himself teaching us what it looks like to follow Jesus just as he did, even in the midst of suffering for Jesus Christ, to see those sufferings as opportunities to sing the glory of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to page 1016, if you're using one of those black Bibles in front of you, to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we'll be covering verses 12 to 19. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. While you turn there, I'll give you a bit of background. Peter the Apostle uh, was one of the early preachers of the gospel. So the book of Acts, you know, you have a lot of emphasis on Paul. You have tons of emphasis on Peter. Peter's going around. He's preaching the gospel. Here he's writing his letter, First Peter. He also wrote Second Peter. He's writing to a church, to churches... Uh, If you look there at chapter 1, go ahead and turn there. It's important to actually look at your Bible there. It says there, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So here the Christians are dispersed. He's writing to Jews and Gentiles together, mixed throughout the uh, Roman Empire there. To the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is basically modern-day Turkey. He's writing to a bunch of Christians, different churches, who were suffering for their faith. 
So they're experiencing, without doubt, persecution. And he's probably writing in the early 60s, so statewide persecution hasn't broken out yet. But Nero would go on and persecute a number of Christians and murder them. But here they're being mocked for the faith, possibly anticipating uh, perhaps greater persecution to come. Let's go ahead and look there at verse 12. I'll read that section there. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will it what will be the outcome of for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, as we see that our sufferings for Jesus are actually opportunities to sing the praises of Christ, uh, we focus on three opportunities in particular. Number one, if you're taking notes, here it is. Number one, rejoice. It's an opportunity to rejoice in the glory of Christ. Number two, it's an opportunity to boast in the name of Christ. And then number three, it's an opportunity to entrust ourselves to Christ. So rejoice, boast, and then entrust. Let's look at point number one. Our sufferings for Christ are opportunities to rejoice in the glories of Christ. Look again at 12 and 13. I'll read there. He starts off very lovingly, right? He's a shepherd. Beloved, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here in this passage, uh, he actually, Peter picks up a theme that he had brought up earlier on in the letter from chapter 1. And here the, the theme is this fiery trials aspect, this trials that Christians are supposed to go to, uh, supposed to go through. And he says, look, they're not, you're not supposed to be surprised when these trials come upon you. Why is it? Why aren't we to be surprised? Go back and look at chapter 1, verse 6. Flip over there. And, and look there, he brings it up. This is at the beginning of his letter. He says, in this you rejoice... That is the salvation of Jesus, the future coming salvation. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, here's the purpose. This is why we shouldn't be surprised. So that, this is the purpose, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So already you see the trials and temptations have an end point. They're birthing something that is namely... Uh, the praise, the glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is his second coming. Here in chapter 4, he comes back to the issue. He says, don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Now, he's not saying we can add to Christ's atonement. He's saying that just as Christ suffered, so Christians are to walk in his footsteps. And so in that sense, we share in Christ's sufferings. Uh, but thinking personally, the question we've got to ask ourselves is, what prevents you from seizing your sufferings and turning them into opportunities to rejoice in Jesus Christ. Well, I think an obvious one is we think that our suffering 
is God's curse upon us. God's curse upon us. Even though there are so many different passages about uh, that speak of God using suffering to purify his people, to grow us in holiness, to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Yet when these things come, we're so surprised. It's almost as if we think of suffering for the faith or suffering in general. You can expand it. Suffering in general as a door-to-door salesman, you know, who knocks at your door during your family dinner time. And we say, who could be bothering us at this time, causing us these inconveniences to our schedules and interrupting what we want to do. Right. And so therefore we're surprised at the knock at the door. And if you are maybe like me, our mode of operation is simply to ignore it. We pretend it just doesn't exist. They'll go away eventually. So we ignore it in attempt um, or as we ignore it, it's an attempt to deny the fact that we live in a sinful world. The fact that we live in the effects of a sinful world, isn't it? We pretend it doesn't exist because we want to do what we want to do. But, friends, the reality is, is God in his kindness gives us his word to help us understand the reality that we live in. And so we see here that God, in the beginning, in Genesis, for example, he creates all things. He creates us to be in relationship with him, a perfect relationship. But then man rebels against him. They choose to live out from under his good authority and instead to pursue their own authority. And in effect, they end up becoming kings unto themselves. Problem, though, is that there is only one king. And you see what happens there, this, this declaration of the, the very world that we live in. We have God's interpretation of what's going on. Chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve, they reject God. They give in to sin. And then you go on to the very next chapter, and what do you have there? You have the first murder. You keep on going, then you have sexual perversion. And then in Genesis 4 and 5, you see there that death reigns. This person lived a certain amount of years, and then he died. This person lived, and then he died. And then in Genesis chapter 6, verse 12, as you see, sin is just spreading throughout... You have this visual of sort of the very fabric of the world after the fall is just darkened by this dark fabric of sin. We have this pronouncement. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. You see the spread of sin in the very first few chapters of Genesis. But yet when suffering knocks at our door, we're so surprised. We think it's strange. Despite all those verses, yet suffering is strange. But we know in the reality, according to God's reality, with sin comes suffering. Even more strange, we think about the sufferings of Jesus Christ. I mean, for some of us, if we are mocked and slandered for the faith, right, we are surprised. And we say something like, I knew Jesus told me to pick up my cross and follow him. I just didn't know he really meant me. Christian, it's so important to have our expectations informed by God's reality. Our expectations of life here on this earth informed by God's reality. You can just imagine if you step into anything, think about relationship, think about wedding, whatever, marriage, uh, workspace, uh, work relationships, children. If this is your expectation and this is God's reality, everything in the middle is what? discouragement despair disappointment if our expectation is here and god's reality is here everything in the middle is despair disappointment discouragement but friends again in god's kindness he gives us his word to untangle the difficulty so that we might see 
rightly. And he does that in his word. But when we know and embrace God's good plans for us in the suffering, the reality of the sinful world, it's then that our groaning gets turned into rejoicing when we know when our lives are informed by God's reality. Verse 13, look there. We see this rejoicing we are called to. But he says, rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's earthly sufferings. So when Christ comes to knock on the door and he calls us to follow him, it's not an inconvenience, but an opportunity to rejoice in picking up our cross and following him. I mean, so you think, how is this possible? Well, it's possible because Jesus' followers are not masochists who enjoy pain. It's because they know who knocks at their door. They know that when suffering calls, when Christ calls them to follow in his footsteps, the one who is knocking is their own good and faithful king. So if you think about it in soldier language, soldier language, military language, what good and faithful soldier would not rejoice at the prospect of following their king into battle? Even before that, what kind of soldier hears and understands the will of God, right? That suffering is going to come, that you need to prepare for yourself for it. He, he hears that and he understands the call to take up your cross and follow me, but does nothing about it. He doesn't prepare himself for it at all. It's a good and faithful soldier who hears the calls of Christ. He hears the commands. He knows Ephesians chapter 6 that this is a spiritual battle. And what does he do about it? He equips himself for it so that when the king calls, he is prepared. He stands equipped and even, friends, proud to follow and serve Christ wherever he should lead. Of course, this is all in consideration, right? Uh, This isn't just a call to some sort of uh, stoicism that we are to die in this earthly life and that's the greatest position of honor. No, the the call to suffer is underneath a giant umbrella uh, or, or a giant pathway of what the king has already suffered for them. So even more pride comes because Christ calls his disciples not just to suffer, but to suffer in the ways in which he himself already did. So Peter wants you, friend, to be prepared. He wants you to be equipped. And he wants you to be proud to share in Christ's sufferings and then rejoice in them. This is why Peter repeatedly turns to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. If you look there at chapter 221. He says, for to this you have been called, namely, enduring unjust suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that is like a tracing pattern that we can walk through so that you may follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, of course, he's returning back to the sufferings of Jesus. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to be proud. He wants us to be ready. And he wants us to rejoice. So another piece of application. Friends, do you rejoice at the call of Christ? When Christ calls you to follow him wherever he should lead, do you really rejoice? Or is his voice more like an annoyance, more like a a bother? You know, if you don't find yourself rejoicing, perhaps you care more about your own kingdom, your own kingdom plans than Jesus Christ's. 
That would be the natural conclusion. If the call of your Lord is seen as an interruption or an irritation to your life, as you yourself have planned it, it could be a clue, friends, if you aren't rejoicing, that you live for your own glory more than Christ's glory. So I imagine some of us here are ready. Right? We know that we live in this, this physical world, and we know that Christ is going to come, and when he knocks, he's going to lead us to a better world, oftentimes through the path of suffering. I know some of you guys are ready. You're experiencing the persecution, maybe the mockery from your friends. You're willing to embrace it because you love Jesus. But some of us here might find it a little bit difficult. Wonderful thing is that this passage actually uh, speaks to both sides. Those who are ready, those who are not ready. Look at what happens if you are found rejoicing. He says, rejoice in the sufferings in Christ that, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see that there? He says, look, if you rejoice in the sufferings that you experience now, friends, that is evidence that you will rejoice when his glory is revealed then at his return. So what you do now will inform what you do then. That's to be an encouragement for those of us who are willing to endure mockery and whatnot for the sake of Jesus Christ's name. Uh, What he is saying is this, how believers respond to suffering is an indication of whether they truly belong to God at all. How believers respond to suffering now is an indication of whether they truly belong to God at all. So how you respond to Christ's call to pick up your cross and follow him in the present reveals how much actually you love your earthly life more than kingdom life with Christ. You think about it negatively. I think this makes sense. Uh, If our heart response is to ignore Christ and reject the king's call. Why would we expect to share in the king's victory and glory then? From a different angle, what does it say about our hearts if we expect to share in the glories that come through Christ's cross, but are unwilling to follow Christ to the cross? I mean, what does that say about the heart there that claims Jesus Christ? That's negatively, positively, if we answer the king's call, if we are eager to go to the door to receive Christ in and to follow him, even in fear, if we are willing to walk in his footsteps, well, we share in Christ's final glory, his final victory. Friends, I hope that as you right now are standing for Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering for his name or expanding it to just embracing the trials that he leads us into, even if he leads us into the valley of shadow of death, we will not fear Friends, that's evidence that your priorities, your desires have locked on to the right things as a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. Using the analogy of the Christian life, a couple of sermons ago, you know, the Christian life is oftentimes compared to a race. Right. If we are standing for the right things, then that means we have dialed in, we've honed in on the right things and we run with our eyes on the prize. You look there and verse 14 it is evidence right if you stand it is evidence that the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you i mean that that's a fascinating term because he's using glory a lot talking about the second coming of jesus and yet it's while it is something that we wait for it is something that we possess now the spirit of glory look if you stand there christians in the midst of suffering the spirit of glory is already upon you he's already brought all of the blessings Uh, that we look forward to finally he's brought them to you now so already we experience the blessings of glory while we await the final consummation of glory so what are these types of blessings well we possess a knowledge that with christ there is final victory and deliverance we possess that now 
The Spirit of glory is upon us, and it cultivates a longing for future glory. We possess an abiding hope that in Christ there is a future salvation. We possess a comfort knowing that God's will will indeed preserve us. And Christ's Christ's Spirit brings these blessings to rest on His people now. And this is how we as Christ followers count ourselves blessed when people insult us, as Peter says there. This is just Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. Peter's now reminding us of this. We are blessed when people insult us. And we know that because it's evidence that God's spirit of glory rests upon us now, cultivating a longing for future glory to come. So that's point number one to recap here. Our sufferings are opportunities to rejoice in the glory of Christ. We can indeed rejoice in our sufferings now, and that leads us to rejoice in Christ's glory then. Point number two. Our sufferings for Christ are opportunities to boast in the name of Christ. Look at verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see here in these verses, there's actually a contrast of names. You could suffer legitimately as a murderer. Uh, here, the implication is that these people who struggle with these sins are not turning away from them. They're not, re- they're not repenting of them, but they're giving themselves to them. You could suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a meddler. And this, this list of crimes here starts with those that would have deserved the death penalty, according to Jewish law. And then he casts the net wide to just go into, you know, ultimately the meddler there is just a busybody getting into people's uh, business and starting sort of controversies. But here he says, may we never suffer for those things. Those things that rightly deserve scorn in the public eye. It's an interesting encouragement here to Christians. If you have ever stood for Christ and others are heaping scorn upon you, friends, you might have been tempted, even if for a moment, to think that you and your Christ actually deserve it. Don't you? If there's enough, let's say the majority is pressuring you, uh, heaping scorn upon you, you might for a moment just wonder if you deserve it. And then you conclude, gosh, you know, like, maybe my Christ and maybe me as a Christian, we deserve the scorn like other criminals. Maybe we're tempted to believe what they are to say, uh, calling us, but this is, uh, this is most likely how their persecutors would have used the name Christian, right? The contrast of names. Don't suffer as a murderer, thief, etc. But if you suffer as a Christian, glorify God in that name. Uh, In the culture there, the people would have used the name Christian like that. It wasn't typical that Christians at that point in time actually called themselves those things. It was actually a term of derision, of despise. And so the Christians would be like those Christians over there. The, the, the dogs of the world almost. So you see here what he's saying here. While they might be discouraged in the face of mockery and scorn and persecution, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, don't be ashamed, beloved, but glorify God in that name. The, 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 the culture was despising the name. Peter here inserts himself and he says, let's redeem the name and boast in the name. Here, boasting, glorifying, defending is tied to identifying with that name. If you suffer as a Christian, glorify in the name of Christ. I have an illustration here. I hope, I hope it helps to bring this home a little bit more. 
I grew up in a home where, by God's grace, my parents were married and they lived together until my mom passed away. Uh, lived together on the same roof by God's grace. I was blessed in many ways because of this, but even your own situation might not have been as fortunate. This might have been your experience. And when I was, you know, growing up, uh, I had friends who grew up in single family homes. And those who grew up underneath single moms, particularly single moms, um, you know, where their moms was, their moms were the only ones who cared for them. They worked a couple jobs to provide for them. They worked even more to put them through school. And maybe they worked even still to take care of multiple children. Right, you get the picture. It was those friends who had a very unique appreciation for their mothers. I'm not saying we can't appreciate our mothers if you, know, you grew up in a family that was intact. But those friends had a unique appreciation for their mothers. And maybe this is you. Friends, why is it, if this is you, that you are so quick, quick to appreciate your moms. Now, some of you guys feel guilty because you don't. But my point is here, for the good and faithful son or daughter. Well, why is it that you are so quick to appreciate your mom? Identify with your mom. Seek the well-being of your mom. Defend the name of your mom and say, you're going to do that for as long as you live. Why? Isn't it because you understand your mother's very own sacrifice? How she sacrificed so much of her very own self for you and your own well-being so that when you think of your mom, you think of her blood, her sweat, her tears. You see the obvious parallel? Friends, the reason why the Christian is able to glory in the name that he or she suffers for is because in the cross, he or she sees their Savior's sacrifice for them. In Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we see Christ's very own blood, His sweat, and His tears on behalf of His people. He left His throne of glory for you. He lived a perfect life, fending off the attacks of Satan. He subjected Himself to unjust suffering by sinful men for you. He embraced the sin and the wrath that we ourselves deserve, the judgment that we rightly deserve, where we were supposed to die ourselves embrace the death penalty for rebelling against god he embraced that for us he tasted death for three days and then he got up from the dead so that those who would ever in all time turn away from our sin and embrace him would know eternal life right so you see that just as the good son and daughter knows the sacrifice of his or her mother just how that person needs not think twice about identifying about defending about suffering for their mom as the case requires, so the Christian does too. At least the Christian who knows so intimately the sacrifice of Christ to win them salvation. For the Christian brought near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, boasting in the name for which he or she suffers is the only logical conclusion, isn't it? That's, that's why this makes sense. That we, that's why, why we can look at Acts chapter 5 and see that after they get beaten for the name, after they get released, they are rejoicing, finding themselves worthy to be counted and experience the dishonor of that very name that they suffer. It's because they know the sacrifice so intimately of Jesus Christ and Christ's love for them. So, friends, on, on Sundays, as the church gathers, this is what we want to do. We want to come to know the sacrifice of Jesus Christ more intimately. 
We want to know the love of Jesus Christ for sinners more and more and more. This is why, friends, we talk so much about the sacrifice of Christ in our services. It's to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. We want to enter into this intimate love of Jesus. And when we do that, when we know Christ's love for us, it's then that we see trials and temptations and even suffering for the faith as something to be rejoiced in. Thinking about more of the church service and how we do this, I suppose you can think about the church like a tent, for example. And the fabric of the tent is like the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every aspect of the service um, of the service are like the tent poles that surround the middle pole. So imagine entering into a tent. You can enter wherever you want to. You're going you're to you're enter in. You're going to see some poles initially that are going to hold up the structure. Right, those uh, outer tent poles are all the aspects of our service. So we had the call to worship, calling us in by God's grace. That's why we start with the call to worship, because God speaks and he creates. And so he's going to do that spiritually. So we start with the call to worship and then we move on to things like uh, the singing, for example. Hopefully it would be Christ centered singing where we're singing about the things that Christ has accomplished for us. We move on to the prayers. Hugely encouraging to have Danny pray for us about uh, a prayer of confession and then directing our hearts to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and all these things. And we're returning back to uh, more singing, hopefully more centered on the cross. And then what is at the middle of the service, or the middle of the tent, the central tent pole, the most important tent pole is the preaching of God's word, where what is heralded is the gospel of Jesus Christ from every passage of scripture. It's the word that brings life. According to Peter, he says there in chapter 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It's God's word that gives spiritual birth. It's God's word that gives, brings about spiritual renewal. That's why it is central to the services. So we want to be clear about Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We don't want anyone to leave this service ever wondering, well, how is it or who exactly do they worship? Who is this Jesus Christ? We don't want every, anybody to leave the service wondering like, gosh, you know what? I'm underneath a, a huge weight of sin. How can I be saved? When people are asking that, let's say in the book of Acts, you have a response. You have, here is the gospel. Repent of your sins and believe. So if you are visiting with us and you know, know yourself not to be a Christian and you're oftentimes wondering like, you know, gosh, these Christians are all singing about the same things and every week we come to service and even though they're preaching the Bible, they're speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, it's because it is that that brings life. What is the gospel? It is the, you could break it down into four points. First is God. If you want to write this down, I think it'd be really helpful. You can write down God. God is the creator of all things. He created us to be in a relationship with him. Perfect relationship, a relationship in love. The problem, though, is that we have rebelled. So this is the category of man. Man has sinned against their only true king. Instead, as I mentioned before, we chose to live out from under authority from God. Instead, we pursued ourselves as if we were God. We determined our own law for ourselves, and so we rejected God's law. That's the problem. And then we come to Christ. This is the third heading. Even though we created the problem, God himself provides the solution. He sends Jesus Christ to die in our place. We, because of our sin, earned God's just punishment God sends Jesus Christ to die for us. The son, the eternal son of God. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for the sins of anybody, everybody who would turn from their sins and believe on him. And so therefore we know forgiveness. We know right standing with our very true king. We know a right relationship. And so we're adopted into his family, the Bible says. 
And we are loved where God lavishes his love upon those uh, who turn to him. And so then the question is for you non-Christian is, will you walk down the road that Christ calls you to walk down, repent of your sins and believe? Or will you continue embracing your own life as if you were God and doing your own thing? Friends, the Bible tells us all, Jesus calls us to repent of our sins and trust on him. And friends, you will know life eternal in Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about this gospel, you can feel free and talk to me or the friend who brought you or the people who are sitting around you. Feel free and ask them afterwards. So to recap, suffering for Christ are opportunities, number one, to sing the glory of Christ, rejoice in the glory of Christ, number two, to boast in Christ, and number three, point number three, our sufferings for Christ are opportunities to entrust ourselves to Christ. Entrust ourselves to Christ. This is something that Peter eventually gets to, but he starts off there in verse 17. Look there. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, friends, where the suffering Christian is to land eventually, where the Christian is to rest. It's who we are, who we can entrust ourselves to. He says they're a faithful creator, a faithful sovereign creator. These characteristics of God were to be the anchor of the Christian soul, right? So if you've ever gone through suffering, you know, uh, suffering in general or suffering for Jesus Christ's name, you know that it can, the suffering can rattle your soul. It can unravel your confidence in Jesus Christ, lead you to doubt Leads you to wonder whether or not the sufferings you're going through are really God's curses towards you. Has he, uh, has he rejected you somehow? Well, friends, if God is not who he says he is, if he is not the creator, if he is not all-powerful, sovereign, then actually we have every reason to doubt. Every single reason. We have reason to doubt his ability. And if we doubt his ability, then we have reason to rest. We have reason to not rest in his power because he's not able to keep us. Those who will suffer, that is all of us, need to embrace our powerlessness in order to rest in his power. Something I've been thinking about a lot. But the only way we can do that, embrace powerlessness and turn to Christ's power, is to know who he is. And here this passage says he is a faithful, sovereign creator. If he has power, what does he plan to do with it? So, friends, some of you guys right now are wondering if the suffering you're going through is leaving you too far out of the reach of God. And you wonder, does God have the power? And if he does, what is he going to do with it? That's when he directs us back to his faithfulness. If his sovereign creatorhood helps us rest, his faithfulness helps us entrust. If his sovereign creatorhood helps us rest, his faithfulness helps us entrust. And we see this in the letter in general. These are the beautiful hopes that Peter is holding out to us. We're not going to recount all of them, but because he is faithful, there's no need to doubt when the darkness closes in on us. Like you're getting choked out and literally just, you, you begin to have tunnel vision here. It, it, uh, we don't need to doubt whether or not we have a living hope, whether or not we have a future inheritance in Jesus Christ, whether or not God will preserve us for that inheritance by his grace. Those are all promises in chapter one. 
Because he's faithful, we can bank on those things. Because God is faithful, we don't need to worry, though the world may reject us and our Christ. Through his suffering, he's already brought us together with him. He's already reconciled us, brought us to God. That's uh, chapter 318. Because he is faithful, we can entrust ourselves to him who will bring us final salvation. Because he is faithful, we can entrust ourselves to him even in the worst of suffering, knowing that he is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us, the Bible says, in multiple places. So, friends, when the king calls, when he's knocking at your door, we know, friends, that it is no one else but our sovereign creator who is faithful. And he calls us to walk in his footsteps and even suffer for his name. Suffering then is not an inconvenience, right? But an opportunity to entrust ourselves to him and his plan. That's the letter in general, but more specifically, if you look there at 17, he gives us the reasons, he gives us uh, aspects of his faithfulness there. Verse 17, first it's God's faithfulness to purify and beautify the church. He's saying, look, friends, I know you're suffering, but I want you to look at how God is faithful. God is faithful to beautify and purify the church for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, some of us are thinking like, how in the world is that encouraging? What exactly does that mean? I, I should entrust myself to God because God is judging us now. Well, I think many of us are might be uh, tend to think that because we think of judgment as condemnation for sin always we think judgment is condemnation for sin always but here judgment is not condemnation for sin we could just look right there it says uh, look at 18 right who are those who are saved they are the righteous who are saved but the point there is that they are saved those who are judged are saved right it does say scarcely saved but there if you want to write down in your bibles think of uh saved through difficulty saved through difficulty this here is not a condemnation for sin but it is a judgment for purification a judgment for purification to understand this verse properly we got to know what peter's doing here throughout the book he reaches back and uses old testament terms and phrases and ideas and then he he says that they are fulfilled in the church so he's doing the same thing here this is a quotation from malachi or not a quotation from malachi but but an echo more like an echo of malachi chapter 3 which speaks about, it's a prophetic book in the Old Testament speaking about the day when God would draw near to his temple to purify his people, therefore making the worship of his people acceptable, right? God draws near to his people first to purify them, to make their worship acceptable. After that drawing near, then he turns outward. So you see here this judgment of purification as God draws near to his people, that is the church in the New Testament, and then he turns outwards towards those who reject him. He's using Old Testament prophecies, speaking of their fulfillment to God's spiritual people, that is the church. This is what we are to conclude as Peter calls the church elect exiles in chapter 1, verse 1. And then in chapter 2, 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, all of that is straight out of the Exodus. Peter calls the church a place where spiritual sacrifices of our lives are offered up to God. That's chapter 2, verse 5. Again, we hear the Exodus language. And so here, when he's talking about how judgment begins in the household of God, he's doing the same thing. Old Testament language for the new people of God, the New Testament people of God, that is the church. So in light of Malachi, and then we have verse 18, look there. Uh, verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved through difficulty, read there, through difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
So you see what he's saying to the church. The time for God to draw near in order to purify the church has already begun. It's already begun, but again, the judgment is a a purification through suffering, through trials. And we have to have God's reality in place. If not, forget this. We're not going to understand it. If we don't have God's reality in place, we will not understand this. But when we do, then we begin to see the entire fallen world as heading to the fire to face God's holiness and righteousness. You see that, friends? Because of sin, the whole entire world is heading to face the fires of God's righteousness. For those who reject God, His fire of righteousness is a fire of condemnation. What will happen? What will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner if even God's household has to go through difficulty? If the righteous are saved through difficulty, imagine the difficulty of those who reject Jesus and what they will face when they face the fire of God's righteousness resulting in condemnation. So just imagine the whole entire world, God's reality, the whole entire world is on an escalator, a conveyor belt to purification. Or more specifically, that God's rule and reign would be made known through judgment. Think about that as a bigger category. Escalator, conveyor belt to the place where God's rule and reign will be made known through judgment. And the ungodly sinner will face that and lead to condemnation. But, friends, the reason why this is so encouraging is because the Christian will face God's righteousness in a different way. You have God's judgment wielded in a different way, the fire of his righteousness in a different way. By God's grace, those who believe in God, the refiner's fire has set his fire of righteousness upon you for a different end. It is not unto condemnation, It's not under condemnation where his rule and reign will be made known to damnation. It's a rule and reign made known through purification. So as the whole entire world goes towards to face his righteousness, you have some who will be condemned and those who are lifted up. So you see, friends, God's grace, God in his grace has set you on the escalator. He has claimed you through the spirit of glory. He's implanted upon you his word of God and caused you to be born again. He is indeed making you more holy, more Christ-like, preparing you for all of the glories that will be revealed into eternity. And friends, he does this by the fire of his holiness. He sets it upon you so that he would beautify you and purify you, where all of your impurities, even right now, would be brought to the surface and gotten rid of in the flames. Given God is a God who tends to the faith that he himself plants in his people, we therefore can count ourselves blessed. We therefore can count ourselves worthy to suffer for the sake of his name. Christian, I pray that you see that the, that the fire of purification is evidence of God's faithfulness to you now in a different way that leads to purification and not condemnation. If we don't, friends, suffering will forever be something you curse. Christ's name will forever be something you question. And entrusting yourself to God will forever sound like chains of slavery but friends when it says that god is faithful you gotta remember that he is faithfully good he is faithfully good which means that all he undertakes is good your sanctification is good and we see that as god implants faith by the word of god so he cultivates your faith through trials and the things that you go through the things that you suffer you see that in the midst of suffering for the faith god is faithfully 
fulfilling his good plan to cultivate a longing and tasting for Christ who is all satisfying. That's what he's doing in your suffering. He is faithfully fulfilling his good plan to cultivate a longing and a tasting for Christ who is all satisfying. And I know that the purging feels difficult, but in the difficulty we have to keep our eyes on who Christ is, right? We want to know more intimately the sacrifices of Jesus Christ. And then we enter into them. We've got to keep our eyes on Christ because in the suffering, God intends to hone our affections for him. He intends to hone our affections for him. This is something that I've been learning a lot. Um, I don't find myself particularly suffering for the faith at this point in time, but I, experiencing, I experience suffering in general. Some of you guys are like this. Uh, my suffering at the moment has been this medical condition called gout. Uh, but even in the medical condition, God is nevertheless purging me, refining my faith, so I trust not in the things of the world that are going to fail me anyway, my body, but in Him who never will. So this is something I've said numerous times before. God purges me now, refining my faith, so that I would not trust in the things of the world that are going to fail me anyway, my body, whether it be tomorrow or whether it be in 30 years, but in Him who never will. Friends, this is a new type of experience for myself. I mean, um, I think I might want to uh, take a baseball bat to my bones regularly instead of having to deal with the pain of gout. Like, it is that intense. I can't write an email. I can't, uh, when, when, I'm, when it's at, like, the peak of the attack. Uh, I can't send an email. I can't watch television. I can't read. I, I can, like, all I'm doing is thinking about how to breathe and live at that point in time. Right. So I might rather just take a baseball bat and sit and hit myself, you know, like, let's say 30 times every minute than go through that. That's how intense the pain is there. And um, and in those moments, I wonder, as I've never struggled in this particular way before, uh, I've struggled with, you know, I got my shoulder problem, things like that. You know, I struggle with back problem. I struggle with watching other people suffer. My family ones, my family suffer. But this is a unique pain of suffering. And so I got to find out, like, how does Jesus want to purify my soul when it hurts so badly? Well, I was reading uh, in my Bible, in my devotion, Psalm 62. I encourage you guys to turn there. Psalm 62. If you open up your Bible, right to the middle, you'll probably get to Isaiah. Just turn to the left. And I was deeply convicted here. So this gout attack has been going on for like, I don't know, over 30 days. It's only peaked like three, three, four times, but man, in those times, it's so painful. Anyway, so I was discouraged and I turned, I was just reading the Psalm of the day or, um, yeah, and that day was, it particularly was Psalm 62. And this is what I read, you know, in my discouragement, I said, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. I was so deeply convicted in the middle of reading that in my suffering. I had to admit that where David waited for God alone for deliverance. Well, what was I sitting there waiting for? God was not on my radar. I was living for the freedom from pain. I was living for living for freedom to live my life how I want to live. While David had God as his rock, as his refuge, as his salvation, as his fortress. For me, it was a healthy body where I wasn't experiencing any pain. What do I want? Freedom from pain. For freedom from pain alone, my soul waits in silence to my shame. For from freedom from pain comes my salvation. 
A healthy life is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. And therefore, when that happens, I shall not be greatly shaken to my shame. But what does God want in the midst of that? He wants that I see Christ as my all. And in no matter the circumstance. To see that from Him, as David said, comes my salvation. Even in level 9 pain. He teaches me to let go of the things that, once again, are guaranteed to fail me and you. In order that we might love Him who never will. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, Peter says before. And he does this, friends, because he is good. Because he loves his people. And in the purification, my vision of God is clearer. My rest in His ability, more secure. My ability to entrust myself to Him, stronger by the power of the Spirit. And that's just suffering for the physical stuff. Suffering on account of His namesake is even more vision clarifying, isn't it? For Christ's people. When we suffer for the name of Christ, God helps us see what we really think about the name of Jesus. Do we really think the name of Christ is praiseworthy despite everything? Boastworthy. Whether we will actually rely on Him as opposed to our names that we chase, our plans, uh, where we are tempted to reject His name. Friends, if you are suffering, God is good, faithfully good, to bring us a clear vision of who God is and for us to find comfort in Him alone who provides this lasting eternal comfort as psalm 62 verse 2 says he alone is my rock and my salvation my fortress i shall not be shaken because god is our faithful creator we can and ought therefore to entrust ourselves to him while living for his name doing good according to his will peter says there we're going to come to this but if you look there this is exactly where peter's going look at chapter 5 verse 6 turn back to first peter if you're not already there 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. He sort of double-clicks what it looks like to entrust ourselves to a faithful God. He says there, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Not a weak hand, but a mighty hand. Why? So that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That's our faithful creator, friend. And if we go through the midst of suffering, we can rely on him. We can rejoice. We can boast. We can entrust ourselves to him. To conclude, with our faithful God and Father overseeing your renewal, your growth in holiness, we can once again rejoice in the glory of Christ, boast in the name of Christ, and entrust ourselves to a faithful creator just as Jesus Christ himself did to the cross, to the death, and in his resurrection. That God would not finally abandon his soul to, he- to death. And when he calls us, friends, to follow in his footsteps, if we understand the love of Christ for us, we will be prepared and even proud to follow our king no matter where he leads. Let's pray together.